So I am uh, approaching with great uh, intrepidation, but joyfully, this portion of God's Word that I knew that I would get to eventually. And I want you to know, before we get going, this stuff hasn't happened yet. And so there are multiple of interpretations. The one thing that we must agree on before we get to it, though, is that we are Christians and we love each other. And this is an area that we need to love each other in. It may be that a few of you disagree with me. Tonight, I pray that we will do so as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's pray and we'll get in there. Lord Almighty, thank you for the opportunity to come before your word. And Lord, let it shape us. Let your word mold us. Let your word show us your promises so that we will trust them and we will give you glory. Bless us tonight as we open your word so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. When I get depressed, and yes, unfortunately that happens from time to time, I need three things. I need a nap. I need a burrito chile verde and a Coke. And I need an opportunity to go visit somebody who's in worse shape than I am because that always encourages me. Yes, and I need the Word of God, and that is what I'm preaching to myself as I'm giving glory to God as I'm chewing that chili verde burrito. Oh, comfort food. Comfort food. Who has a comfort food? Raise your hand. Who has something that when their spirits are down, they just need to dig into it? Everybody does. Everybody. In fact, there is a website dedicated to comfort foods. Now, raise your hand if that surprises you. No, it doesn't. Different people have different comfort foods because we're different. If you're in Canada, then you love poutine, which looks surprisingly yummy. It's fries and yummy stuff all into it, and I'm there. Let's go. In Japan, your comfort food would be oden, which also looks amazingly good, and I would have it. And if you're from Lebanon, then your favorite is manuish. Did I butcher that too much? Uh, which also looks very good. So I am down for that. Um, in fact, I will eat almost anything. Almost. There are a few exceptions. Because let's be honest with each other. Comfort food for most of us is just food, right? We eat it because we need it and we eat it because we just need to feel better. You know, we take comfort in that which is familiar. And in fact, we as a people in general actively fight against things that are not familiar. Now, in a lot of cases, this is okay. If you're talking about comfort food, no problem. But we need to be willing to 
consider things that are unfamiliar or consider things that are not what we've always been told or what we've always had. Now, as Christians, we also understand if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, then it really isn't new. And so we have this perspective that we balance and we need to bring this truth along with our thoughts to the Scriptures. Because I don't know about you, but I often fall into ruts and I need to have my brain stretched a little bit while I am prayerfully considering a text in front of me. Now, there are two things just as a broad theological concept that we need to consider as we're considering this. There are subjects, there are teachings in Scripture that we find what my theology professor called conviction-level beliefs. Now, a conviction-level belief are things, for example, salvation by grace through faith, the authority of Scriptures, the deity of Christ, and there are a few others that are like that, that if you choose not to believe as the Scripture teaches on these subjects, then you are outside of the historic teachings of the church. You are at least heterodox if you're not a heretic all the way. Uh, If you have any questions about that, see Pastor Benji after the sermon. There is a second level, though, of doctrines that are taught by Scripture that my theology professor called persuasion-level beliefs. And these are beliefs about which the Scripture teaches that Bible-believing and Christ-honoring people throughout the centuries have disagreed about. These are, for example... um, how you baptize, how you do church government, how you do uh, speaking in tongues or not. These are persuasion level beliefs. And these beliefs don't separate Christian from Christian, but what they separate is believers who go to different churches on Sunday morning. I had lunch with my uh, friend who is the associate pastor at the Foursquare Church and this week, and we had a great lunch. I love Dennis. He is a man of God, and there is no question of that in my mind. And if you started us talking together on the issue of speaking in tongues, I bet we would disagree, right? But we can still love each other even if we don't go to the same building on most Sunday mornings. One example of a persuasion-level belief is that concerning the end times. Now, there are three basic categories of beliefs concerning the end times. And I'll preface that by saying which Bible-believing and Christ-honoring believers hold. There are others, but those are not held by Christians. And these four beliefs, or three primary beliefs, can be uh, enumerated into four different positions. Um, And so, there are those who believe that Christ is right now currently reigning and that every knee should bow. I'm sorry, I got, I got, um, yes. Christ is currently reigning, every knee 
in the earth should bow now and all enemies are currently being destroyed within history and Christ shall not return until this mission is complete. These are called post-millennials. They think history is going to get better and better and better as the church wins the battle in the end by the power of Christ. These are post-millennialists. Now, amillennialists who have recently started calling themselves realized millennialists, and I think that that's a better name once you understand what they're saying, argue that the millennial reign is happening now and Christ is presently reigning now in heaven and that Jesus will return unannounced to earth and establish the eternal state. That is a very brief idea of what amillennials believe. Premillennialists are those who believe that Christ will return and establish a millennial kingdom, a proximate thousand year reign on earth, after which will come the eternal state. And this eternal state is what we commonly call heaven. So there's these three. So Christ is reigning now and will not return until heaven on earth is established or a, a, a godly society is established as post-millennialism believes that Christ is reigning in heaven and that he will come and usher in the eternal state. And the premillennialists believe that Christ is going to come and set up a thousand-year kingdom after which comes the eternal state. Now there are two kinds of premillennialists. And I would suspect, based on conversations, that most of you in this room are what are known as dispensational premillennialists. And that's because that was the most commonly taught doctrine among Baptist churches in the 20th century. Um, and I won't get into why, but the dispensationalists believe that when Christ's return, his return is going to happen in two different stages. And this two different stages then, when he comes a second time, will then usher in a thousand years. And the historic premillennialists, which is the camp that I fall into, and I know there's a couple of you in here who do as well, look at this, and we believe that Christ's return is going to happen in one stage. He is going to come back, and when he comes back, he is going to set up a thousand-year approximate kingdom before the final battle and the entrance into the eternal state. So, now, yes, I just did a whole semester worth of theology in about five minutes. So, hang in there, because we talked about this about two years ago. Do you guys even sort of remember that? Okay, good. And remember, we're family. And family loves each other even if we disagree at the Thanksgiving table, right? What I want to do tonight is water ski through Matthew chapter 24. Now, I, I have to, otherwise we'll be here for two hours and I think it's going to be a long one anyway. So hang in there with me. But I'm water skiing through it instead of going verse by verse by verse by verse because I think that the point of Matthew 24 is to just give us a quick view. This is what's going to happen between when Jesus is standing there outside of Jerusalem talking to his disciples all the way up until he returns again. Again, let me stress 
that whether you're a post-millennialist, amillennialist, or pre-millennialist, we can be any one of those and be Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. And you can be any one of those and not have received Christ in your heart and be a born-again believer. So just because you're any one of those doesn't mean you're any more special than the others. Okay, so tonight, the chapter that we are going to go through uh, is what all four of these general positions, uh, post-millennial, amillennial, dispensational, or historic pre-mill, all look to this chapter to kind of see what they're looking at. So, remember persuasion level belief. And you don't have to be persuaded by my interpretation. All I ask is that if you disagree, if you want to disagree with about it, please come and talk to Pastor Benji and, and we will, I will laugh while he is... <laughs> yes, okay. Here's the big idea. Here is in one sentence what I believe... The Lord spoke through Daniel, what the Lord spoke through Matthew here, and what the Lord spoke through John in the book of Revelation. Here is the one sentence that I think best understands all of these parts of the Bible. Be prepared for Jesus to win. Be prepared because God wins. Okay. So let's, let me give you an overview of Matthew 24, and then we're going to go through it. Verses 1 through 3. The disciples asked Jesus two questions. When will the temple be destroyed, and when will you return? It is important to note there's two questions, because that will figure into our interpretation. Verses 4 through 13, Jesus lays out several quote-unquote signs that aren't. These, Jesus is saying, are not things to look for because he says in essence, this is how life is in a sin-sick world. Verses 15 to 28, Jesus then gives very specific signs referring to the destruction of the temple that is imminent. And he tells his disciples to when you see these signs, get out of Jerusalem because you don't want to be left behind in Jerusalem when all this happens. Verses 28 to 35, Jesus describes with apocalyptic language the punishment that is going to be levied against those who called the curse on themselves when Pilate said, I wash my hands of this, and they said, His blood be upon us and our children. God took them literally. Verses 36 to 44, finally, Jesus talks about his return and warns his followers that they won't see any signs of his coming before, therefore, they need to be prepared. Starting then in verse 45, all the way to the end of chapter 25, which we're going to attempt next week, Jesus is emphasizing as strongly as he can, because you don't know when I'm going to come, be ready. Because you don't have any idea, be ready now. Okay, so let's look at these two questions and then we'll go through our passage. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to him and pointed out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered, 
You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left, be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So here are the two questions. Jesus had just finished telling them that all the judgment earned, remember last week when we were in Matthew 23, earned by Israel for their millennia of persecuting God's prophets were going to come on this generation. That's exactly what he said. I think it's in verse 36 of chapter 23. Now, I don't know about you, but if the guy I've been following for three years said that to me, I'd be going, whoa, Jesus, what's going on? Tell us about this. I want a little bit more information. Anybody feel that way? I, I know that, that I would be. And so as I said, Jesus lays out several quote-unquote signs that aren't signs. In other words, things, don't worry about these things because they just happen in a sin-sick world. Let's look at what they are. Verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now listen. That sounds remarkably like our day today, doesn't it? Oh, but it also sounds remarkably like the time of the Reformation. And it sounds remarkably like the time of all the godly people who have suffered persecution for centuries. This is just normal stuff. The birth pains he's referring to haven't come yet. The end hasn't come yet. That's still in the future and he's going to come back to that in a minute. Jesus wants you and me to know that bad things are going to happen in this life. And because bad things are going to happen in this life, you and I need to be prepared. We need to know that this is normal. We need to know that suffering happens. And we need to be prepared. We need to love the people around us and reach out to them in love while they're suffering so that they know that this person obviously loves Jesus more than he or she loves this world. Now, the reason Jesus gives this warning about signs not to look for is because the love of many will grow cold. And specifically, he said, because lawlessness will increase. Oh my Lord, that is exactly what is happening right now. Lawlessness increasing, love of many grow cold. So what does he do? He tells you these things are happening so your love doesn't grow cold. In spite of the lawlessness, have no fear. You will suffer on this planet. Therefore, love. 
So, be prepared. Jesus is going to win. Be prepared. The lawlessness that is rife throughout the world today is not going to be victorious. Be prepared because Jesus is going to win. Therefore, live as He tells you to live. Be prepared. Be ready. That is what's going on here. Now, let me tackle the largest section of this. And that is 15 to 28. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, how many of us have ever been to Judea? How many of you have been to Judea? So, it doesn't apply to us? Right? Okay. Just wondering. Just wondering. But obviously, he meant it to apply to somebody. Let's see who that is. Then the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let not the one in his field turn back to take his clothes. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter on a Sabbath. None of these apply to us, my friends. Jesus is talking to specific people. We'll get to that in a minute. For theirs will there for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if these days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, and so as to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. See, look, pay attention. Behold, I am telling you, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will it be in the day of the coming of man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, listen, my friends, this passage is straight forward. It is not complex. It is actually very easy to understand. What is going on here is what the church has called, I am advocating, the partial preterist view. I believe that Jesus is describing the events that for him and his hearers were still future and happened between 66 and 70 AD when the Roman army came and invaded Judah. Great destruction happened. And Jesus went out of his way to explain to them that it would happen. He says when he's describing these judgments, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, the most natural understanding of this generation is that he's talking to the people in front of him and there will be people in front of me who will experience this. Now, I went to a dispensational seminary and I know that there is a dispensational interpretation of that. I'm not going to go into that right now. I'm giving you how I view this. The most natural understanding of this is that God is going to visit judgment upon the people who are standing in front of him. And this happens a couple of chapters later when Jesus is standing before Pilate, as I said, 
Verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be upon us and our children. Oh my goodness! I can't imagine a worse thing to say to God. God, I dare you to judge me. God, please. That was spoken rhetorically. That was folly. Evidently, the Father took the people standing in front of Jesus seriously. And He visited the worst nightmare to date on Israel. Josephus reports to us that the Romans went through Jerusalem next to each other just hacking people. And the Romans behind them had to walk on corpses because there wasn't ground. He tells us about the blood of the people who are in Jerusalem just rising and becoming a river. Not only that, it's worse than that. Because the people who had been besieged for two years in Jerusalem had started fighting and killing and eating each other. This is the judgment of the Lord. This is what Jesus is calling the great tribulation. Now, I'm not denying that there's a tribulation to come. I'm not even denying that there's a tribulation right now. Ask the Christians in Syria if the tribulation is happening right now. What I am saying is that this that happened between 66 and 70 AD in Israel is what Jesus is talking about. So patently obvious would the reality of the visiting of the Son of Man be on Jerusalem that He spoke in prophetic words, lightning and vultures. And the people in the first century could not have missed it. It was that awful. The Jews had been a pain in the Roman side for too long and Rome was sick of it and they wanted to make a show of what they would do to a country that stood up against the might of Rome and God let them do it. Now fortunately... Fortunately, the first century Christians around at this time agreed with my interpretation of this passage. I wish it were, it's not just mine. I'm taking it uh, actually both amillennial and historic pre-mill both describe it this way. And they got out of Dodge. They saw the signs approaching. They had read Matthew 24 themselves and they said, look, it's coming. Let's get out. Who cares about your cloak? Right now, we've got to beat it. You know, an interesting side point. I wasn't going to mention this, but one of the minor generals, it wasn't, uh, wasn't Vespasian, it wasn't Titus, it was another guy, and I can't remember his name. When he finally got done sacking all these other villages, he was the first Roman general to get to Jerusalem. And so here he is um, getting ready to surround the city, and inexplicably, 
Historians, and even Josephus, doesn't understand why he did it. He backed up. He got to the city. He was ready to start the siege, and he backed up. For three days, he didn't press the siege. And guess what? People got out. They beat it. They got out of Dodge because they said, that's what Jesus was talking about. It's coming. I'm out of here. Now, once he stepped back up to the city, guess what? No one got out of there alive. I think we need to absorb the awfulness of the siege of Jerusalem and the siege of Stalingrad and countless other things that have all pointed Luke 18 fashion to the end of the world when Jesus is going to come back. But, and, and this I would say is an example of that but it's so clear that these verses are talking about this period of time in the first century that we need to realize that. And we need to be prepared for Jesus to win. Now, frankly, I haven't said that much that is controversial yet. People from all four millennial positions can agree with me, but I have started down a path that certain millennial positions will eventually disagree with me. I say some dispensationalists because the progressive dispensationalists, those who are in the majority of the academic dispensationalists today, um, actually haven't said what I found problematic yet. But the traditional, the Darbyites, um, the Schofields, the traditional dispensationalists, and then the revised dispensationalists, the Walverds and the Ryries and those guys, they would take um, umbrage with me spiritualizing the interpretation of lightning and vultures. But how I want to respond to that questioning of my spiritualizing of these is how far does lightning go? I, Pastor Benji and I were talking and one of the things you know what, what would happen the world is going to split and it's going to go flat for a point a period of time and because if lightning happens it would have to be flat so everybody would see the same you know in other words i i don't see how that interpretation could be anything but what is called spiritualizing but i'm not spiritualizing it because i'm using it as i believe jesus would want us to use it, it this is obvious this is very obvious, and you need to catch that I'm talking about 60 to 70 A.D. And the vultures came, and boy, did they come. Now, furthermore, all flavors of dispensationalists and some historic premillennialists will say that Jesus' second return, his return, in other words, the answer to the second question, starts in verse 29, which we're about to get to. Jesus is definitely talking about the second coming. Now, with amillennialists and at least some historic pre-mill guys like the one that I go to, Craig Blomberg, is going to say that Jesus doesn't yet start talking about his second coming until verse 36. Now, 
more importantly, and where the, dis, the, the disagreement is going to come between the dispensational, traditional, and revised camp and the camp that I belong to, the covenant theologian camp, the big disagreement that's going to come is on the view behind the interpretation. Because I'm looking at this and I'm seeing that Jesus is describing with apocalyptic language the judgment, the punishment, the wrath of God that is to be levied upon those who called the curse upon themselves. Now I'll back up again and I'll say, if you're a dispensationalist you disagree with me, I still love you brother, sister, and, and we need to work together to solve the problem of, abor- of abortion. We need to work together to win souls and make disciple-making disciples. And we need to work together. If we disagree on this, it's not all that important. Where it's important, however, I think, is in this understanding of what's going on in Scripture and how Jesus uses it. So let's look at verse 29 to 35. Uh, Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jerusalem being sacked, Immediately, note that word, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the earth, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather the elect from the four winds, and from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I believe that God can do everything anything that is not a logical contradiction or goes against one of his clear promises. God can do anything that isn't a contradiction and doesn't go against one of his promises. And I believe that he is not going to call all the stars of the universe to converge on the planet earth. If you want to take the falling of the stars, literally, that's what that would mean. Instead, the way I read this is I want to take Jesus, what Jesus says here, to be within the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Jesus, on this day that he gave this sermon, would be thinking a lot more in terms of Joel than Schofield, for example. And clearly, the language of the sun darkening and the moon not giving its light is straight from the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give us light. On all the bright lights of heaven, I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. This language that Jesus is using comes from the Old Testament and it's meant to convey the absoluteness of the fact 
that God is coming and He's making it clear that He is the one who is sending this judgment. It's not that Rome got lucky that they made their ships land, brought their troops over, and they collected enough you know, groups of soldiers to come and wipe out Jerusalem. That doesn't work that way. God says, I did this. I am going to win. My judgment will come. That's why you and I can rejoice as we become prepared, as we prepare ourselves for Jesus to win. Furthermore, this interpretation gets rid of the difficulty of this generation not passing, which is a famous difficulty if you believe that this generation means people on earth or something along those lines. Now, is there an argument? Yes. And am I simplifying? Yes, I am. Um, go and read Chafer if you want to get the alternative view. But my point is, is that this interpretation makes it so that literally people who heard Jesus preach were alive and they were there when the Lord visited his wrath on Jerusalem. And simply changing how you see this, simply looking at this passage differently, changing what you've always thought about, if you allow your mind to read this passage with these eyes, what you will see is that Jesus is making absolutely clear, as clear as He possibly can, that this judgment is going to come. And when this judgment comes, I want you to know that I did it and it happened because His blood be on us and upon our children. Okay. There you go. Now, lest you think that I'm picking on dispensationalists, because I also I know who's in front of me, let me tell you a couple of things. My seminary was a dispensationalist school. Pastor Benji's seminary was the dispensationalist school. And you, you, you can't get around that. Um, secondly, what I want to say is I praise Jesus for dispensationalism because dispensationalists were one half of the equation that fought the battle against the modernists in the first part of the 20th century. You had the Presbyterian side of the fundamentalists and you had the dispensationalist side of the fundamentalists. And half of that equation is what caused the church to say no to people who wanted to deny the virgin birth people who wanted to deny the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And dispensationalists were almost single-handedly responsible for creating what continues today in the Bible conference movement. Now we call it something else, but that's what they almost single-handedly created. So I don't want you to think that I hate dispensationalism because I don't. And I'm okay, and Pastor Benji has said on numerous occasions as well, we're okay with people being dispensationalists. Again, I'm just emphasizing that I'm giving my take on it, which is a historic pre-mill take on it. So, Jesus says there will be a time of increasing 
I'm continuing this this, uh, where we stand in common with dispensationalists. Jesus says there will be a time of increasing persecution. Tribulation will come and that is clear from multiple scriptures and we will find that the events of AD 66 to 70 are a forerunner of what is going to happen when the Lord finally visits his judgment on the world. So, be prepared. Jesus is going to win. But now we get to the part where Jesus answers the question that an inquiring mind wants to know. Jesus is going to talk about his return, and he does so to tell his hearers to be prepared. I want you to note what is missing from this particular paragraph in the Bible. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows. That's a pretty straightforward statement, right? For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, many were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, no one knows. Because we're doing all these things right now as well. Then two men will be in a field and one taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, normal stuff is going on. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, here here it is. Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have taken his gun out and stopped him. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I have already been going for 40 minutes and there is a huge question going on about what does it mean that someone was left behind? I'm just going to leave you with a tension because I I won't be able to go into it tonight. There are good reasons to believe that those who are left behind are the people who are not judged. And it's those who are taken who are taken away in judgment. Ooh, them's fighting words. I'm just going to throw that out there and leave it and decide whether I'm going to preach on that next week or go straight to chapter 25. But what do we see missing from this paragraph? What is missing from this paragraph are any signs. Jesus is coming again. It may be morning, it may be noon, it may be evening, it may be soon, but Jesus is coming again and you and I and Harold Camping and Ellen G. White and Charles Russell and Edgar Wisenot, none of them know. So if someone starts telling you Jesus is coming back at this time, you have my permission and the permission of Matthew to turn around and walk away. Because they don't know. 
The signs that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 are the signs of the imminent destruction of the temple. And that happened 2,000 years ago. We don't need to worry about that anymore. What Matthew 24 teaches us beyond any shadow of a doubt, what the book of Revelation teaches us beyond any shadow of a doubt, what the Bible teaches us beyond any shadow of a doubt is God wins. And therefore, be prepared for that. Lord Almighty, give us grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here and give us great grace to walk with you because we need you. This is a dark and painful, sin-filled world and we need you, Lord, to give us grace to walk with you through it. As we go through the valley of the shadow of death, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus so that we will know that you win. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, guys.